When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for a burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, I'm just going to invite David uh, to come down and uh, open God's word for us. Um, If you weren't here last week, you won't have met David, those of us uh, that were did. And David's studying at the Bible College of South Australia. And one of the important things for us to do as a church is obviously to give people that are studying God's Word an opportunity to explain God's Word uh, in a public and in a community context. And so we're really excited this morning to have David uh, do that. Um, So it's great, I think, if we can just pray for David as he does that um, and encourage him uh, as we do so. So thanks. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible College of South Australia. 
We thank you for its lecturers, its tutors, its volunteers, uh, for the council and for all the students who attend. <coughs> Father, we pray that as they meet you in your word and as they study uh, your word, that they may come to know more and more fully uh, the love that you have expressed in Christ. Father, we pray for David as he studies. We pray that you would give him a mind and a heart uh, to understand and to grapple with your word, that you would be at work uh, through your spirit in his life to change him and transform him, uh, to guide him, to gift him and to lead him. And we pray particularly this morning for him, that you would fill him with your peace, your joy, your wisdom and your knowledge as he opens uh, this passage from Matthew 26 for us. Be with him, uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, David. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, everyone, for giving me the chance to share with you this morning. As we turn our attention toward Easter, we are temporarily jumping ahead in Matthew for the next two weeks to the account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. As I was thinking about Easter and what Jesus did for us, I realised that I know the details of the story how Jesus died, but I can have found in my own heart that I can easily take for granted what Jesus did because I'm extremely familiar with it. I was brought up in a Christian home and so I've heard about Jesus dying on the cross for as long as I can remember. I think for those of us who have heard this story all our lives, we can become so familiar with the details that we almost become blasé about what really happened. My hope and prayer is that during this Easter period, as we consider Jesus' death and resurrection, our joy and thankfulness for what Jesus did would be increased and we would see the significance of Jesus' death for our own lives with fresh eyes or perhaps for some of us here for the first time. And so we open the Easter account in Matthew's Gospel at Matthew 26, verse 1. The story here is centred around two meals, Jesus eating at the house of Simon the leper and Jesus eating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. But before we get to this, let's look at the context in the previous chapter. Just a few verses earlier, back in Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus has been talking to his disciples and he paints the picture of the end of time. Imagine you are there. King Jesus, the Son of Man, is out the front of a great, massive multitude of people. He is sitting on a glorious and magnificent throne with angels giving him the adoration and worship he deserves. And he is the judge of every single human being that has ever lived from every part of the world, from every nation and people group. There is nothing or no one that does not come under his control. Jesus is in charge. It is impossible to overstate how glorious Jesus is in his kingly authority, how much higher he is than every person who has ever lived. Then we turn to Matthew 26, verse 2, the very next words of Jesus. As you know, Jesus said, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Hang on, isn't he the king of the world? 
who will be there at the end of time, directing everything, sitting on his glorious throne? Isn't he in charge? The disciples would have been surprised. No, surprised isn't a strong enough term. They would have been astonished, amazed, shocked. It would have been hard for them to reconcile Jesus as the king and judge of every person who ever lived with the fact that Jesus is going to be captured and killed in a torturous, demeaning way, hung on a cross to die a humiliating, painful death. Doesn't that seem strange? So what is going on here? And Matthew 26 resolves this confusion for us. We do have an explanation. In this chapter, Matthew portrays two meals in which Jesus explains to his disciples and to us as we read this chapter the mystery of why a glorious and majestic king who is not controlled by anything or anyone is betrayed, captured and dies the most humiliating of deaths. So Passover is two days away, the biggest of all the Jewish feasts, celebrated in remembrance of how God freed the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians. Jerusalem would have been building up to this for weeks beforehand. Passover was a massive event in the Jewish calendar. People from everywhere all converge on Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the centre of Israel. The population expanded by about a quarter of a million people for this week. The closest analogy in Australia that I could think of is Melbourne on the AFL Grand Final weekend. The hustle and bustle, people from interstate flying in, the excitement of the parades, the festive spirit that fills the air. And in Jerusalem, the talking on the street and in the shops would have focused on Passover, celebrating what God had done for them in freeing them from the Egyptians all those years ago. Passover was part of their national identity. No Passover, no Israel. But behind the scenes, the influential leaders were thinking of anything but Passover. Thankfulness to God was the furthest thing from their minds. They gathered in the palace of the high priest and were consumed with thoughts, plans and plots, how they were going to put Jesus to death. I think in having this meeting just before the Passover, we get a picture of where their hearts truly are. Surely they, as the spiritual leaders and guides of the people, would be committed to this feast, thanking and praising God and putting all political thoughts and motivations to one side. But no, their thoughts are political. They desire to protect their own little kingdom and their position in society. Self-interest has taken such a strong grasp on their souls. Suddenly the scene switches again and we are back with Jesus and the disciples. He is eating a meal with the disciples at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. Simon is probably one of those lepers that Jesus has healed. As leprosy in those days was a disease that meant you were basically cut off from society. You were ostracised because of the fear people had in those days of catching an incurably and terribly disfiguring disease which resulted in a painful and lonely death. But now, because of the healing work of Jesus, Simon has been restored back 
into society, able to lead his household and to have a meal with friends. His life has been completely changed. So one can imagine that the mood at Simon's house that day would have been pretty cheerful. But then something completely unexpected disturbs this meal. In verse 6 we read, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. This woman completely ignores social convention and comes up to Jesus while they're eating and pours an entire alabaster flask of ointment over his head. A sudden hush would have fallen on the room. This is not just any old perfume. Our text notes that it's very expensive. So think of exclusive perfume. The flask of ointment probably cost at least a year's wages for her, probably around $40,000 in today's term. And she uses the entire flask in just a few seconds? This is crazy. Normally, if we were using an expensive cologne or perfume, we'd only use a tiny bit at a time, just one spray. But look at the extraordinary extravagance of this woman. Pause and imagine the scene. The perfume would have filled the whole house and probably would have even been smelt in the street outside. The disciples would have looked at each other, aghast and probably embarrassed for the sake of Jesus. They would have known exactly how much the perfume cost and wouldn't have seen such extravagance in their entire lives. And so it isn't really surprising that they respond indignantly. Why couldn't this perfume have been used for something useful, they say, like helping the poor? After all, Jesus did teach about the poor, and the Old Testament has many commands to help them. But what is really surprising and remarkable here is the response of Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus states that the woman has done something good, beautiful, fitting. In other words, the actions of this woman are entirely appropriate to the situation. This isn't a waste. This is a good, right and proper use of the perfume. So what is going on here? Why is it appropriate to spend $40,000 in just a few seconds? Jesus is worth it. Such an extravagant display is not crazy or ridiculous. We don't know the woman's motive, but she illustrates the great and amazing truth that Jesus is worth so much more than we could ever think. So this begs the question, why is Jesus so valuable? Why is this extravagance so appropriate? Jesus then goes on to relate this extravagance to his burial, which is really strange because Jesus hasn't died yet. In ancient times, a body was embalmed with spices and perfumes after the person had died to preserve it. But Jesus is still very much alive. But this woman is acting as a prophet in this situation and she is saying that Jesus' death is coming. 
It cannot be avoided. Nothing will prevent it. Jesus is as good as dead. The phrase here, prepare me for burial, is the same Greek word as the word used in John where Jesus is actually dead and the woman prepare him for burial in the tomb. But the real reason this extravagance is entirely fitting is because the worth of Jesus is related to his death. This is very strange. Wouldn't Jesus be more useful if he was alive, healing people, preaching the good news of the kingdom, like what we have heard about in the Sermon on the Mount? What has the worth of Jesus got to do with his death? This is a shock to the disciples as well. When we look to verse 13, this is emphasised even further. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus uses the word truly here because he knows that what he is about to say will sound unbelievable. It is so far away from what the disciples were expecting. Let ourselves be shocked here as we hear this. Jesus relates his burial to the term gospel. What does the phrase this gospel refer to? It refers back to the previous verse. He refers to his death. We easily gloss over the word gospel because the word gospel is a part of our Christian lingo and it can lose its original meaning. But the original word in Greek society was a secular word used to refer to a message of good news and often used in the context of a weighty, authoritative, royal message of victory. It was often used by a king returning from battle, giving the good news of the defeat of a foreign army. For the people who heard this gospel, everything had changed. Their lives would have been turned upside down for the better. Victory over foreign armies would have meant greater prosperity, greater security, freedom from foreign rule, perhaps, and safer lives. At the heart of the use of the word gospel in this context is the fact that the news is good. So good that it brings great joy. So how is the burial of Jesus such good news? It seems like bad news. But we are getting a glimpse here into just how important the death of Jesus is to the Christian faith. And Jesus opens up for this, us for this, in his conversations with the disciples in the upper room. But before we come to that, let's just briefly recap what we have seen in the first meal. We saw that Jesus is so unbelievably and incredibly valuable that even the most ridiculous and crazy extravagance is entirely fitting and appropriate. Jesus then shocks us by saying he is valuable because he is going to die. He amazes us by using the word gospel in relation to his death. His death is good news, reason for joy and hope. And so we are left with questions. How can this be? The second meal begins. The disciples are gathered in the upper room and Judas the traitor is in their midst, planning and plotting how he will betray Jesus. He has met with the leaders and has his 30 pieces of silver. The clock is ticking. In 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. Jesus knows that the time to talk to his disciples is now.
Time is so short, so precious. Every minute counts. In less than a day, the disciples will be heartbroken as their leader. The one who they have left everything for will be dead. And so Jesus, after exposing the identity of the traitor, turns to a message of hope. He explains why the death of Jesus is such good news for his disciples and ultimately for us. He explains why Jesus' death makes him so supremely valuable for us. And so we turn to Jesus' words in verse 26. Now, as they are eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus turns the Passover feast upside down. What he says would have been completely unexpected to his disciples around him now. But it is at this point that the disciples would have begun to understand just how massive Jesus' words were for them. But it wasn't just for them. They are massive for us as well. They change everything for us. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? What exactly does this mean? To understand the significance of what Jesus is saying, some context might be helpful. At a normal Passover feast, there would have been a lamb prepared for eating. Every year, that when the Jewish people ate the lamb, they remembered and explained to their children how the blood of their lamb that their ancestors in Egypt had sprinkled on the doorposts protected them from the destroyer and led to their freedom from the cruel slavery of the Egyptians. It represented their salvation from the Egyptians and from the destroyer. So why is this context important? Instead of the blood of the lamb acting as their salvation, Jesus himself takes the place of the lamb. His body is the one broken. The lamb doesn't die. Jesus does. So the death of the lamb doesn't save us anymore, but Jesus' death does. And how does Jesus' death save us? Verse 28 explains, When Jesus dies, his blood is poured out. Verse 28 says, And this blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The lamb died to save the people from the Egyptians and the destroyer. Jesus died to save his people from their sins. Jesus has utterly changed the Passover. The new covenant is established. Through death, the people of God are saved. Oh, the relief. Jesus has died so that our sins can be forgiven. Is there anyone here who has any regrets about the past? Perhaps the better question is, is there anyone who doesn't have regrets about the past? Sins committed, which have resulted in us carrying the impossibly heavy load of regret, 
Oh, that I had done things differently. Oh, that I hadn't done this or that. I think as Christians, we do believe with our minds that our sins are forgiven. But do we feel it? I know that for myself, as I walk around, unconsciously carrying this heavy load of regret over past sins and past actions. I don't always acknowledge it, but I do have a low-level sense of guilt. I've done things which are wrong. And the way it surfaces in my heart is through an unhealthy fear of God. The wrong kind of fear. One which causes me not to seek him, but rather one which causes me to feel my unworthiness before him and be scared to come to him. Perhaps some of you feel the same way. You feel unworthy because you feel like you are never doing enough to please God. Perhaps you compare yourself to people around you who seem to be doing so much in the service of God, but it's quite possible that even they feel the same way. And Jesus enters into this. His blood was shed. Your past sins are forgiven. You and I don't need to feel that regret for the past. Jesus has borne it. It is forgiven. So far as the east is from the west, our transgressions have been removed from us. We can let go of our burden, of never meeting our own standards or the standards of others or the standards of Jesus. Jesus has forgiven us completely and utterly. But wait, there is more. It's a classic phrase of those infomercials, late night TV, there's always more, but it never delivers. But in this case, the words of verse 29 offer so much more and deliver an extraordinary hope for the future. Verse 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is the significance of this new wine? And what does Jesus mean by talking about the kingdom? The kingdom begins with the resurrection of Jesus. But I think here Jesus is referring to the end of time when the kingdom will be fully instated. I think this because the cup of wine he refers to is not just any old cup, not just taking a drink, but the cup of wine drunk in celebration, the last of the four cups drunken at the Passover. New wine in the Old Testament is associated with joy and rejoicing and in Jewish literature with the Messiah coming and establishing his complete reign over the earth. So I think Jesus here is drawing from the Old Testament. One example of this is in Isaiah 25. I'll read a few verses and as I do, imagine yourself there because this is yours and my future. Jesus has made it our future by forgiving our sins. So Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations, 
He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken from the earth for the Lord has spoken. So as certainly as Jesus died in the past, our sins are forgiven and the burden of past regrets and failing is gone. As certainly as Jesus died in the past, we have an amazing future doesn't that make the present, whatever we are going through, more bearable? We have something incredible to look forward to. I think of the verse in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glory is the future of the people of God. Glory is our future. So as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, we see why Jesus is so valuable. He has forgiven us our sins and prepared for us an amazing future and a glorious hope. So treasure Jesus, just like the woman did at Bethany. She gave up everything for Jesus. And may we do the same Count him as more valuable than anything else in this world. And so this Easter period, my prayer is that we would just not believe with our minds that Jesus has forgiven us our sins, but we would feel the relief of the burden of past sins gone. And that we would be strengthened to continue trusting and treasuring Jesus alone through the hardships and trials of life, as we remember what an incredible future of happiness we have with Jesus. Shall I pray? Father, we thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you that you died to forgive us our sins. We thank you that you explain here in this passage, what it means to have sins forgiven and just how valuable you are. Father, and as we go out into the busyness of life this week, may we not forget what you have done for us. It is so easy, Lord, to forget. But we pray that you would remind us by your spirit what you have done. And when we're tempted to place anything above you or tempted to push you to one side, May we remember what you have done for us. In your name I pray these things. Amen.